Today we turn in God's Word to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. There's an outline on page 4 as well in the bulletin. We welcome those visiting with us here this morning as well as those online. Today we come to an end of a short topical series that the elders asked me to do on marriage. Today, 1 Corinthians 13. Hear now God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most common passages read at a wedding. Maybe you had it read at your wedding. Maybe you've heard it many times at a wedding. Hearing it read at a wedding, however, may give us the wrong impression it actually might cause us to miss what this passage is about. Because this passage is not so much about a wedding or marriage as it is about Christian love, living the Christian life in the life of the church. Now, of course, this applies to marriage, absolutely, in so many ways. But it's really telling us not about romantic love, but about agape, covenant love. It's telling us there's a better way to live, Christian, than being self-centered. And Phil Riken, in his book on this passage, Loving the Way Jesus Loves, who I'm going to be quoting from here today, says, this is not a feel-good passage on love. In fact, if you read it and actually recognize it, it's almost terrifying because it tells us a standard for love that we don't meet. But it does give us hope. How is that? As it tells us of the love of Jesus for us. As it reminds us of the cross where our sins were forgiven. And as the Holy Spirit then empowers us to love like Jesus loves. The life of love first. The context here. The Corinthians had all the church stuff down. They went to church. They prayed. They went to prayer meetings, they sang, they took the Lord's Supper, they even had each other over in their homes. 
But the church had massive problems, plagued by division, factions, splits over theology and practice, splits over issues of sexual morality and marriage, how to worship, the place of men and women in the home and the church, how to exercise church discipline, what to do about these pagan love feasts, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, arguments about who's the best, who's the brightest, who's the smartest. This was going on all over the place among the family of God at Corinth. Why? Because they failed to love God and they failed to love each other. The challenge of this today to us, loved ones, is how do I love people that I disagree with in the body of Christ right here? How do I love people over this last year that I have different opinions with about? How do I love people that we have different theological opinions on related to non-essential matters? It's true we live in a world that has horribly misinterpreted love, that the idea of love, all you need is love, I've lost that love and feeling, the songs, the movies, the sitcoms, it's all over the place, and it's completely unhinged from a biblical view of love. That isn't loving, someone will say, related to something in the Bible. That's true. But in our own hearts, we need to, we need to ask a couple of questions. How am I failing to show love to the family of God right here? And where have I failed to show love to the lost? Because if you ask the world, what are Christians about? Here's one thing they'll often say. Christians are those who always tell people everything that's wrong with them. That ought not to be. We need to acknowledge that Christians have not loved the unbeliever by reaching out the way Jesus reaches out. We need to acknowledge that the Word of God calls us to love the lost, to pray that they'll come to faith in Christ, and we need to acknowledge that what we pray God will do among us is something that happens only by the gospel through the Spirit. That God will create a loving community here that when an unbeliever sees it, they say, I don't get that, but I'm attracted to it. There's something there that's different than the Rotary Club or the American Legion softball team. Second, this is how the life of love, the love of Christ. Marriage problems, like all relationship problems, are ultimately God problems. What do we believe about God? That's the ultimate issue here, isn't it? And 1 Corinthians 13, as you read it, you think this is almost talking about a person, isn't it? Love is patient, love is kind. Loved ones, it is talking about a person. Everything these verses say is characteristic of Jesus. So as you look at the passage, put in Jesus where it says love. Look at that. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. The love of Jesus is not arrogance. The love of Jesus does not insist on his own way. Let's look at some of them. Christ is patient. This is one of the attributes of God. 
This is one of the communicable attributes of God. So God is patient, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is love. He is full of goodness and mercy. And by his Spirit, we become more like that in Jesus. Riken shares an example of this. Christ is patient. Talking about the example when Lazarus was sick. Do you remember that? And Martha and Mary were saying, Jesus, hustle up. Kick it into gear. Get over here. Jesus didn't hustle. In fact, he delayed so long that Lazarus died. And the delay caused the death, and the death led to Jesus having himself grief, weeping, and being indignant and angry over death itself. Why did Jesus do that? To demonstrate the glory of God. Because if he had hastily run ahead of his father's plan, he wouldn't have been able to show the father's glory by bringing Lazarus back in a resuscitation from death to life. It teaches us about the patient love of our Savior. It reminds us how patient God is with us. The perfect patience of Jesus leads sinners to eternal life. Jesus is kind. God's kindness is rooted in the covenant of grace. The distance between us sinners and a holy God is so great, and yet God voluntarily condescends to us by way of a covenant. The covenant love of God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, you will be blessed, and through you, all the nations, Revelation 5 type stuff, all the peoples, all different ethnicities will be blessed, Abraham. Out of his love, God delivered Israel out of Egypt. He established the Davidic covenant. He said to David, I will raise up a son after you who will sit on the throne forever. And do you know the kindest thing ever done in human history? God was so kind that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. One way that love is measured is in the costliness of the gift. We all know that in our, loving, in our relationships, don't we? In that way, God loved the world with the costliest gift of all, his only begotten son. Kindness in Christ coming into the world, taking on human flesh, the incarnation. Kindness in how Jesus fed the 5,000. 5,000 men, probably 20,000 total, men, women, and children that day. That's XL Energy Center filled kids to the brim. Kindness in how Jesus healed those who were pushing in on him, the crowds, and how he didn't snap back at them. Kindness in how Jesus said to the crowd, you are like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. Our Savior is kind. Kindness in how he went to people that others wouldn't talk to, the outcast, those who are broken and oppressed, and how by the Spirit he has come and given the incomparable riches of God's grace in kindness. In fact, God's kindness leads us to repentance. The Holy Spirit is kind. 
so that as the Spirit lives in us, we recognize, I have grieved the Holy Spirit by my sin, and the Holy Spirit has been abundantly patient with me. How many grumblings, how much pride, how much lust, how much coveting is in this heart, and the Holy Spirit lives here, and the Holy Spirit is putting those sins to death in me and in all of God's people across the world because kindness is seen in the gospel going forth to the nations, in Christ fulfilling the promise of the covenant made by God to Abraham. Jesus is that promised offspring of Abraham. What amazing kindness, and the kindness of God for you will never end. Through all eternity, you won't exhaust it. It won't run out. Love is not resentful. Do you remember how Jesus loved Peter? Peter denied him just like Jesus said he would, and Jesus looked at him as the rooster crowed. He loved Peter, but Jesus is fully human. Jesus suffered the pain of the betrayal of a friend. Maybe you've suffered that. Maybe you're suffering it right now. Your Savior has been tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. The relationship between love and forgiveness is seen in how Jesus treats Peter. The forgiveness was costly. The love was generously given. Love bears all things. Sometimes maybe you've heard someone tell you, God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? Where is that in the Bible? It's not. It's a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 10 where it says, God is faithful. You won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will give you the ability to endure it, to escape it by his spirit. But God always gives us more than we can handle. That's the point of grace. Some of you have way more than you can handle right now. Unbearable loss. Unspeakable pain. Grief and tragedy. Physical illness things that are not going to get better perhaps in this life, dealing with impossible people. God is our refuge and strength. Your strength fails, mine does too. The answer is not within. The answer is not try harder. The answer is I am weak, God, you are strong. God, give power to me. Give power to the faint. Increase the strength of the weak. And the more you walk with Jesus, the more thankful you are with how patient he is, aren't you? How he bears with our sins, our failures, our grumblings, our foolishness. Lord, how could I have done it again? Forgive me. He's not frustrated either. He doesn't bear with you in your weakness like a frustrated parent who says, just no more, right? Which we all know in our hearts we struggle with. Divine love bears with us because it bears us along. God strengthens us. Jesus' love, Jesus endured all things. Love led Jesus through a life of suffering. Born in a manger, exiled to to Egypt, betrayed by his closest disciple, falsely accused, 
verbally, emotionally, physically abused by the soldiers, love led him to Calvary. And at the cross, he wasn't passively kind of putting up with us. He was actively enduring suffering for us. A shameful crucifixion under the curse of Almighty God, bearing the judgment we deserve, and yet he was silent. The mocking, the false accusations, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he is the perfect sacrifice that God demands for sin. He takes the guilt of our sin on himself. He achieves that perfect righteousness we need. He is the perfect man who is loved like this. This is what love looks like. It was love that raised him from the dead. It was love that exalted him to the Father. Jesus, loved ones, is in all this chapter perfect love. It says in Ephesians 5, Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's an Old Testament story, children, that was true, that points to this. Do you remember Hosea and Gomer? Hosea was a prophet preacher. God said, Mary, Gomer, she will be unfaithful to you. He did, and she was. Gomer caught the eye of a stranger. She left Hosea. But then God said something amazing. Go and take care of her because her adulterous lover is not. Go and get food for her. Gomer sank so low, loved ones, she was sold as a slave in Jerusalem. God told Hosea, go and buy her. When a beautiful woman was a slave, she was naked, and the bidding would begin. For Gomer, a man bid three, five, twelve pieces of silver. Hosea said, fifteen pieces of silver. Another man, fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. Hosea, fifteen pieces of silver, a bushel of barley, and a half on top of it. The auctioneer said, sold. Hosea took his wife, whom he now owned, put clothes on her, and led her away into the crowd. And loved ones, that's an illustration of what Jesus does for us. The redeeming love of your Savior. We are the slaves sold under the bondage of sin. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. He enters the slave market of sin. He bids the price of his blood. Sold to Jesus for the price of his blood, says Almighty God. He bought you, he loves you, he clothed you, he led you away with himself, wrapped in his righteousness, and he says to you now by the Spirit, you are not to live anymore as a prostitute of sin. Third, our love for each other. Now, as the bride of Christ, Emmaus wrote, as the body of Christ, Corporately together, we learn to love the way Jesus loves. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we look at the text in these eyes. Look at verse 1. Paul goes after one of the sacred cows in Corinth. Remember what they were all known for? Knowledge. I'm more spiritual than you are. 
one-upmanship. Paul says, okay, Corinth, and these are words of exaggeration in these verses, I speak in tongues. Paul says that in chapter 14. Tongues then were known languages. We're not going to get into that today, but that's what he's talking about. Paul had the gift of prophecy, declaring the will of God. Paul understood mysteries. And Paul says, suppose I had the gift of speaking in angelic tongues, this other language. Now, he doesn't say that that actually existed. If I had that, without love, it would be like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Meaning, worse than worthless, like annoyingly awful. Like your son or daughter who's learning to play the oboe upstairs and just keeps going on and on and on. Do you know the difference between an oboe and an onion? Nobody cries when you cut up an oboe. The Corinthians made brass, like clanging cymbals. That's actually their business. And this image might have been a pagan temple, all this noise going on. That's what all the spiritual gifts are like if there's no love. Boy, he's a good preacher. He doesn't love anyone. His preaching is worthless. He or she, they are so good at hospitality, so generous. Without love, doesn't count for anything. He or she, when they pray, I know that they're a jerk, but when they pray without love, Paul says, nothing else matters. We can know our theology, who God is, and that's where we learn about love. Yes, we love theology. But if our study of theology doesn't lead us to love each other and God more, it's meaningless. If we know the Bible front to back, and we have all the answers for all the objections, and we don't love that person we're talking to about the Bible, but we're a prickly pear, we're mean-spirited, we're nasty, that Bible knowledge is worthless. We can give away everything we have, all of it to the poor. We can die as a martyr being burned at the stake. That doesn't merit anything before God. Without love, if you act like a jerk, That sacrificial stuff means nothing. So what does love look like? Eight things it's not. Love does not envy. In our hearts, we envy when we look at someone who does something better than we do that we should be good at. Kids, it might be someone who's really artistic or really good on the piano or really good at sports It might be the classmate who gets a better grade. It might be the guy that gets the girl on the date that you wanted to go with on a date. There's a lot of dating by envy. It might be as a mom, those kids that that mom has. Those kids look perfect. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my kids? It might be what that person has, the house. And you envy them, meaning you hate them. Envy eats at our soul. We cannot lose that we want to take something from. Love does not boast. Love is not a windbag, meaning people who love to talk about themselves. As you meet with visitors, and those who are here are grateful you're visiting today, 
Don't ignore them. Don't smother them. And when you talk to them, just genuinely ask questions about them. Not about yourself. Love does not boast. Love does not seek to win admiration and applause. Boasting is pride, but it's also a failure to love. Because if I'm boasting, I'm boasting about what I have and what you don't have. When we envy, we wish we had what they had. When we boast, we brag about what we have that they don't have. And what is it? A failure to love. Why does Paul bring this stuff up? Because it's going on in Corinth. Because it's a spiritual problem in the church there. And loved ones, it's a spiritual problem across the centuries. The Bible is timeless. Look in our own hearts here. Love is not arrogant. Puffed up. A step beyond boasting. An arrogant person exaggerates their accomplishments. They think they're way smarter than they really are. And if you're arrogant, you don't think you're arrogant because you're so blind you don't see it. Diotrephes. John chapter 3, 3 John. He loves to be first and he does not accept what we say. I know the best. I don't need to listen to you. Love is not rude. That means inconsiderate. Love knows when to speak, and love knows when to remain silent. Loving people don't insert themselves into matters that don't concern them. They don't tell everyone everything they think about all things. Just because we have an opinion doesn't mean we have to or even should share it. Dear Christian, this leads to a lot of hurt in the church when someone gives unasked for, unwanted advice to someone else about something that they think they know better about. The list of these things is endless. It could be the diet you follow, the food you eat, the school you go to. It could be the exercise program you've got. It could be how to get better from whatever you have. That's where it can often really hurt. And people might not mean to be hurtful when they say it, but it comes across that way because it's rude. Because it's arrogant. It's thinking, this worked for me, you do it. And what it does is it breaks down fellowship. And it can break down trust and intimacy. Because rather than listening to someone, rather than praying for them, rather than weeping with them, we think we have to fix them. Oh God, kill this sin in our hearts. Sometimes, loved ones, when we're not wise in what we say and how we say it and to whom we say it, then what can happen is we can think, well, no one wants to be friends with me. No one wants to talk to me. And this might be why. If someone dominates conversations, thinks only of themselves, is negative and grumbling, then they kind of push others away. We have to think about how this impacts our life at Emmaus Road. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-centered. Love is not turned in on me. That's what was going on at Corinth. Everyone argued, they talked over each other, and they didn't listen to what the other person said. Loved ones, if you disagree with someone, let them speak. 
Don't create a straw man. Listen to their perspective. When we have to do it my way, so much conflict arises. It's self-love. Our self-love, kids, is like a big bed. Imagine a big bed that's about as big as your room. And you try to move it around the room. You angle it. You twist it. You flip it. Does that give you any other space in the room for a desk? No, because it fills up the room. That's what our self-love is like. We need more of the love of Jesus, especially for this next one. Love is not irritable. Steve Martin, father of the bride. He's talking with his daughter's fiance. Annie is a very passionate person. Passionate people tend to overreact at times. Annie comes from a long line of overreactors. Me, I can definitely lose it. Father, a nut. My grandfather, stories about him are legendary. The good news is, though, this overreacting tends to get proportionately less by generation. So your kids could be normal. Passionate people, overreactors. As David Paulison says, it's funny to watch. In real life, this kind of anger incinerates marriages. It disintegrates families. Bitterness, grudges. I'm not going to talk to you. It divides churches. It leads to road rage. It guns down classmates. It energizes gossip when you get together with someone. He snapped at her at breakfast. She brings up a mistake he made. He walks out angry. She leaves without saying goodbye. That is not what God wants for us at Emmaus Road. Yes, we should be angry at sin, as God is. But this kind of irritability is not agape love. Irritable people are quick to get angry. Do you know why? Because they can't put up with the faults of others. They expect perfection from them. And at its core, remember, marriage problems are what? They're God problems. Irritability is not, you frustrated me. It is, I have a negative view of God. I refuse to seek God's help. I'm going to choose instead to get angry because what needs changing is that person. Irritability always looks at the flaws in the other. The irritable person is the one you walk around on eggshells by because you're not sure what's going to set them off. Where are they going to go next? The opposite of irritability, loved ones, approachability. I'm thankful for the elders God has given us and these deacons. They are men who are approachable. I hope you know that. You can come up and talk to us. They're not going to pound at you. They're going to listen to you. They're going to love you. They're going to say, how can I be there with you and for you? And so many of you in the church, men and women, are like this. Approachability. We're blind to irritability. We don't see it in ourselves. We see it in the body language and the tone of voice so clearly, don't we? By God's grace, on Monday, I did see it in myself. I was irritable. I asked my wife to forgive me. 
There was no reason for my irritability. It was selfish. It was sin. And when God shows us that, that's a sign of his grace. The opposite of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. Impatience, unkindness, jealousy, pride, arrogance, being rude, insisting on doing things my way, getting upset at every little offense, keeping a record of every wrong, rejoicing when people screw up, complaining, no hope, and being cynical. But God has a better way. 1 Peter 3. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. They are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Don't send your prayers shipwrecked on the Split Rock Lighthouse. That's what happens if things aren't right between you and your spouse. If you're not honoring her, don't be surprised if you block your prayers. Peter says literally, your prayers are constipated. That's graphic. That's the picture. Because our vertical relationship with God is connected with our horizontal relationship with each other. You can't keep them separate. And loved ones, a sign of trouble in our marriage is when we, when we stop praying with our spouse. Because without prayer, we drift apart. Same is true in the life of a church. That's why we love our prayer meeting. That's why when the men and women gather and you gather with a friend, you pray because you are connected. Praying together is the way back from coldness, distance, and indifference to intimacy, empathy, and tenderness. It's the place to start healing in your hurting marriage. Men and women, humbling ourselves, holding the hand of our spouse, maybe trembling and not knowing what to say, opening up to Psalm 103 and reading it together and praying together. Agape, love. Love is not resentful. Doctors have said our bodies release toxic chemicals into our brains when we think malicious thoughts. The chemicals actually burn into the branches of the nerve, and the burned-out neurons, Phil Reichen says, are called emotional black holes. They're empty spaces in the brain produced by angry resentment of a bitter soul. It actually affects the brain. Well, they let me down. They spoke hurtful words. They wasted my time. Resentment builds. It's like Ebenezer Scrooge, kids, who keeps a tally of everything everyone owes him, who keeps a list in our minds of everything anyone has said and everything they failed to do and where they haven't followed through, and it rehearses it. Do you know what we often do? We remember what we should forget, and we forget what we should remember. But it's possible for the brain to grow back nerve fibers, to fill the black holes. New memories replace the old. It's amazing. How? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Healing comes through forgiveness. The resentful person keeps track of the wrong. Love doesn't keep track. Love doesn't keep score. Love lets the past die. 
Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love doesn't think sin is entertaining. Love doesn't inwardly get excited when you hear about someone else's sin or hard times. What then is love? Love is patient. That's not being stoic. That's not just putting up with someone. That's an active verb. The opposite of being short-tempered. Love is long-burning. Love bears with struggles, copes when things don't go my way, doesn't take stuff out on others. Love patiently bears with those who are weak, with children. Oh, it bears with children. He's one. She's three. Love understands what a one-year-old and a three-year-old are facing. It's different than a 40-year-old. Love bears with those who are rude, with those who are hurting. Love is kind. This is love in work clothes. This is love welcoming people generously, showing sweetness to all of them, being tender-hearted, being gracious, wanting that person to grow and wanting God's truth in their life and wanting to help them in a way that actually will be practical, useful. This does not shy away from speaking a word of correction or admonishment. To receive rebuke from a righteous person is a great kindness. But a kind love does not unnecessarily speak harshly, but sweetly. Love rejoices with the truth. It rejoices in God's law. It rejoices in Christ and all we have. And because of that, it bears all things. So love doesn't take our ball and go home. Like kids often do. We know in our hearts we often want to do that. When there's conflict and disappointment, love doesn't harden the heart. It doesn't do passive-aggressive. It doesn't do silent treatment. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't end relationships over small things. This is not talking, as we have said before, of abuse and ongoing, awful, unrepentant type sin. But our relationships together are like gardening. They require work, diligence. And when we think of our marriage, it's like a compost pile. Here's how one person put it. When you enter marriage, you see all sorts of beautiful things in the field. Flowers, trees, everything looks wonderful. But after long, what begins to happen? You step in cow pies. They are those idiosyncrasies and sins and habits that bother you in your, your spouse. And, and late at night, they're especially there. Oh, they rise up at night. There's cow pies in the bed. They're sitting right there on the pillow. You try to forgive them, but they begin to dominate the relationship. So what does this writer say? Create a compost pile. You've got to deal with this stuff, but you do and you bring it to the compost pile and you don't camp out there. You go to the rest of the field, forgiving and forbearing and saying, you know what, there's a lot to be thankful for in this marriage. I can choose to focus on that one thing or I can forgive, forbear, and we move on together in love by God's grace. 
Love believes all things. Not being naive, but trusting God. Trusting God in financial distress, in health difficulties, in challenges, kids, that you have with your friends during the summer, with your siblings in the house. Love trusts God. Love asks God to help in the midst of these trials. Love hopes all things. Love never loses hope. Do you realize, Christian, that a cynical Christian is an oxymoron? Do you know why? Because Colossians 1, we heard of your faith in Christ, the love you have for the saints because of what? The hope laid up for you in heaven. Love knows God is faithful. God fulfills his promises. The gospel makes us secure. And that makes us less disagreeable. Secure people are not threatened by those who disagree with them. It makes you much more pleasant to be around. It makes you much, much more charitable when someone disagrees with you. You want, them to, you want to think the best of them as you can, and you want to think of them in the best way that you can. Love endures all things. It tolerates wrong accusations. It endures insults. It doesn't say, you accuse me, you insulted me, I'm going back, and I'm raising the stakes. Love doesn't do that. When it comes to Christianity, it really doesn't matter how you start. Many have started well. It matters how you finish. The one who endures to the end, Jesus says, will be saved. Endurance how? Because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So love keeps on going. Do you know one reason why 1 Corinthians 13 is often read at weddings? Because of verse 8. Love never ends. Because when you get married, you look at your spouse, and there's something beautiful that says, we can endure anything. What a beautiful picture for the human heart. And then you get married and you realize two sinners just said, I do here. There must be another one who loves in this way. There must be one beyond me, apart from me, whose love never fails, and that's the gospel. Jesus' love for you, his child, never fails. And so, dear Christian, love keeps on going. We keep learning to love the way Jesus loves. It's a process that continues until the Lord calls us home. And we remember in the midst of it, Jesus' love for us never ends. Will our sufferings, our anxieties, our painful body aches, Satan himself will snatch us out of God's hand? No way. Jesus loves you too much to bring you halfway to glory and to let you turn back. Love is the more excellent way for us, Emmaus wrote. Love is the more excellent way for our marriages. If you are married, your marriage is a picture of Christ and his love for the church.
If you are married to a non-Christian, pray that your gentle spirit and prayers will be used by God to save that spouse. If you're single and wanting to be married, women, ask, is this a man I can love and respect? Men, is this a woman I am prepared to love as Christ loved the church? And hear this, dear, dear one. You are not less than human. You are not lacking anything if you never get married. Jesus was never married. And human marriage is temporary. There will be no human marriage in heaven because the consummation of all things in the new heaven and the new earth will be experienced. We will be married to Christ, our bridegroom. And right now we praise God that Jesus loved the church, that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, how? In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, send forth your Holy Spirit now. Pour your Spirit into our hearts with that most excellent gift of the love of Christ and help us to know that Christ died for us, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for Jesus, who for our sake died and was raised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We conclude this series together on marriage by turning to page 8. Let's stand together.